Hello, and welcome to the HE Live podcast. I'm your host, Polly Martin, Senior Reporter for Hydrogen Economist. Hydrogen is on the cusp of major growth, but at this early stage, venture capital plays a major role in supporting innovation throughout the value chain. I am pleased to welcome Michelle Robson, Senior Investment Manager at AP Ventures, to discuss the role of venture capital in hydrogen. So to start with, Michelle, could you tell us a little bit about the history of AP Ventures and what kind of companies make up its current portfolio? Yeah, sure. And thank you very much, Polly, for having me. It's great to be here and to speak about hydrogen and about you know how venture capital can support the development of the ecosystem. A little bit of history to AP Ventures. So we've been investing in the hydrogen value chain since 2014, so almost 10 years now. And obviously, when we first started out, you know, the thought of hydrogen was, you know, quite far off in terms of the opportunity. And it's been, you know, really gratifying to see the development of the industry over the last 10 years. So AP Ventures originally started investing as part of Anglo-American. We were a corporate venture capital fund. And the original investment thesis was predicated on looking for new sources of demand for platinum group metals. So Anglo-American was a large producer of platinum group metals from its operations in South Africa. And those platinum group metals are most commonly used in catalytic converters in car engines and trucks and the like. And obviously, as we move towards the electrification of the powertrain, there's no longer a requirement for those catalytic converters and the metals that are used in those. And so Anglo-American were looking for new demand sources for these metals. And after much research, the hydrogen ecosystem appeared to be a really interesting market with the use of platinum group metals throughout the value chain in the production of hydrogen, in the use of hydrogen, in fuel cells, obviously, but also in the midstream as well, in the carriers that move hydrogen from one place to another. And so the fund began its investments first with an investment in a small German company called Hydrogenius, which makes a hydrogen carrier, a novel hydrogen carrier. And from then it's expanded to now having 25 investments across two funds with a total value of 400 million funds under management and a broad team spanning both the UK and South Africa and portfolio companies across the globe. So I suppose kind of when it comes to sort of where VC funding has focused over the past couple of years, you mentioned that kind of it's mainly been on the production and end use. So I suppose as kind of production infrastructure starts to come online in the next couple of years, where are the main focuses when it comes to new investments? Yeah, it's a great question. So for a long time, we've been a believer in the midstream. So we've recognized that there is this gap in the value chain and in the ecosystem, if you will. So We've got electrolysis, we've got various different types of electrolysis in the production, and obviously there's also other forms of hydrogen production as well. Pyrolysis, which turquoise hydrogen, blue hydrogen production, every kind of colour that you can think of. And then in the downstream, you've also got a lot of various applications for hydrogen. Obviously, there's the abatement of heavy industry, of heavy-duty transport, but also in chemical production as well. And what we've seen is that there is this gap between being able to move the quantities of renewable hydrogen, uh, renewably sourced hydrogen from where it's produced in areas with abundant sunshine and wind across to the demand centers where it's going to be consumed, be that in Asia or in northern Europe. 
So there's that both a geographic and also a temporal distance between the two. And so that midstream is really, really important. And so we've invested quite a lot of money in various forms of hydrogen carriers, which provide low cost, efficient and safe means of transporting large volumes of hydrogen to really enable the economy to develop and to provide hydrogen as a commodity going forward. I mean, so kind of that would be almost kind of the most return on investment, as it were, kind of the most valuable part of the supply chain to actually kind of unlock. You can think about return on investment in a couple of different ways. So obviously, where there are considerable pain points, that's going to provide an opportunity. Investors also look at business models as well, at novel business models. So that's also an interesting investment area for us. And I think if we think about the different kinds of ways that we're looking to deploy our investment, we're thinking about predominantly technology gaps. So we're thinking about, you know, where do those technology gaps exist? And so we've spoken about the midstream. So, for instance, efficient carriers, but also things like ammonia cracking technologies, which also require a lot of development and improvement to get them going at scale. There's also technology improvements. So although we have existing technologies in place, for instance, I mentioned electrolysis, there's the opportunity to improve those technologies. And so that's where we see a lot of opportunity for returns as well. And then there's opportunities for innovation using green hydrogen. And so that's things like synthetic fuels or synthetic chemicals. And those kinds of areas we also think could be very attractive for investors. And that's where we're looking to deploy our capital as well. So I guess kind of where do you see the most potential for innovation in new kind of technologies or in the sort of gradual incremental improvements? Yeah, sure. So I think we've spoken quite a bit about the midstream, and that's obviously where we see a lot of opportunity for being able to plug that gap. And that's where we've been focusing on quite a bit of spend. There's also that component innovation as well. So we're talking about the Gen 1 products are in place, Generation 1. And now it's about improvements and perhaps even redesigns in order to create that Gen 2 product. So perhaps it's better membranes. You know, it might be a novel electrolysis design or fuel cell design. Those kinds of innovations that can really create quite a step change in terms of performance. And then when we look at the downstream, we're thinking about with the cheap renewable hydrogen, where are the opportunities for early adoption? So we look, for instance, towards the industrial sector where there is a mix of legislation and there's new capex required to replace aging infrastructure. Those two things combined can create some really interesting demand segments, such as in the marine space, in energy generation and in steel. And then we also look at consumer markets. So there may be sectors where there's an ability or an appetite to adopt or even pay a green premium for those zero emission offerings. For instance, we've got synthetic polymers for green clothing, or we could even extend the thinking into food and the like. There's lots of different opportunities, but it's really thinking through, you know, where is that legislation heading? Where's the demand likely to take place? And where is the capital spend most likely to have the greatest return on investment? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I guess just kind of going on from your point around kind of innovation, I mean, obviously, we're starting to see a lot of research and development projects from major energy players, whether kind of as consortia or kind of individual companies, really starting to invest in innovation to plug some of these gaps. But we're starting to see kind of consortia investigating green steel. We're starting to see energy majors investigating ammonia cracking at scale. So I'd be interested in your perspective on where startups fit when it comes to industry innovation. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. It's a really good challenge. And my belief is, you know, startups have the luxury of two things. 
the ability to focus and the ability to pivot. And that's really what sets them apart from some of the corporates that, you know, have been perhaps, you know, taking a leading role here. And I'm not saying that one is necessarily better than the other, but one certainly has the ability to focus on one thing versus the other. So if we think about the startups in terms of that ability to focus, they can dedicate time and funds to the development of a solution to a specific pain point. So they're not going to have to adapt their focus to the whims of changing company strategies or shareholder pressure and the like. You just have a team that's really united in delivering one goal, that the simplicity of that is a great strength. And the other piece that I spoke about is the ability to be able to pivot. And we've seen that with our portfolio companies as well. They're not tied to one particular product or market or delivering against one particular strategy. They can pivot to where they see the market heading. So they obviously have a platform technology that they're looking to develop, but they can direct that into the most attractive markets. And it's that freedom to be able to pivot and to move quickly that really sets them apart. I think a couple of other things are worth keeping in mind as well. They don't have an existing business to worry about, so they don't have to worry about cannibalization. And that can be a concern for some strategics. You know, startups' hands aren't tied. They don't have to really split themselves in two. And they also have quite an independent funding model, so they're not constrained by having to return on existing capital investments. And that can be a consuming sort of factor for some strategics. But that being said, I would point out that obviously startups need strong IP and we always support our companies to create that IP moat because that's really what's going to help them to be successful. And they also need to ensure the team is appropriately incentivized because it is hard work and they need to be supported to get through those tough times. But the final point I would make on this topic as well, you know, talking about, you know, where do startups fit in terms of industry innovation is really the best outcomes are where we see startups and strategics working together as partners, where the strategics can share their know-how on manufacturing and markets, and where the startups bring the agility, the ownership and the motivation for change. I suppose kind of when it comes to startups, what are some of the key considerations for AP Ventures when it comes to investing? So when we look at an investment, we're looking at it across three broad dimensions. And the first one that I'll talk to is technology. So I touched on it before, but technology is a really important factor for us. So we're looking for, I mean, the word disruptive is used all too often, but like most other venture capital firms, we're looking for disruptive technology, but we're looking for technology that is a leading edge. It has a definite improvement on anything else that's out there on the market that really fills the gap perhaps that we don't even know exists yet. So the technology element is really, really important to us. We'll do quite a bit of work internally to understand the technology differentiation and if it really does offer that improved, that noticeably different offering for customers. And we'll also get in external parties as well. We'll get in experts to help us test the technology thesis and any risks around the scale-up. The second piece that we look at is the business model. So the technology has to be able to return an attractive profit. We need to get an attractive return on our investment. So that business model is really important. So we go to a lot of trouble to understand the markets they're going to be moving into, the regulatory frameworks, their go-to-market strategy, the partners that they're going to need to work with, the margins that are likely to be available from where they're focused with their particular product. That business model is super critical. And then finally, and this is also a really important piece, is the team. And I've spoken about this 
previously, but the team make or break a business. You know, the founders are so critical to a startup business. So we're looking for passionate, energetic, inspired founders that have that vision that really challenge us to think differently about our preconceived ideas and that are able to build really great teams around them because the founders can't do it by themselves. So these teams that they bring together to really deliver on the vision. So I suppose just kind of on your point around what kind of policy framework are these startups going to be launching their product in? Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen a lot of positive response from the industry around the publication of the EU's final draft of the Delegated Acts defining renewable hydrogen. I'd be interested to hear your perspective on effectively kind of the importance of policy and regulatory certainty when it comes to actually kind of deploying capital. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the certainty, to whatever extent we can find it, is really important. Obviously, venture capital, you're in the business of risk, and you're in the business of being able to understand and trade off risk as well. We take on an awful lot of risk. We're taking on technology risk, market risk, team risk. So anywhere that we can get some level of certainty is very, very important. And so for us, understanding how policy may change is really critical. And I'll give you an example of that. Very early on in our fund life, we took a decision not to invest into grey hydrogen. And for the most part, this was based on, obviously, the mandate of the fund, which is that we can only invest into technologies which abate substantially all carbon emissions. But there was also very good financial reasons not to invest into grey hydrogen which are that government and business regulations and mandates mean these assets are unlikely to make attractive returns when it comes to our exit timing. So at the point in time when we're looking to exit from these assets, you're facing into these really strong headwinds, which are really going to dampen the exit value that you have and therefore the returns for your investors. So this, this I think, helps to illustrate how we think about policy and regulation. We're a really patient investor, but we do need ultimately to plan for an exit, be that in six, eight or 10 years time after the initial investment. And so having a good view on how policy and regulation may evolve in the near to medium term is very important as we think through our investments. And what kind of tailwinds or headwinds are we going to be selling into? That's a really interesting point. So is it almost kind of that the actual policy itself or kind of how the regulations are put together is maybe kind of less of a concern than when those policies get announced and when they come into force? like the timing of the policy rather than whether it's kind of particularly beneficial to a given technology? Well, I'd say they're both important. So obviously, if there's going to be regulation put in place, which may disadvantage a particular technology, and again, I would emphasize that we would like all regulations to be technology agnostic, but obviously, should it happen that a technology is looking to be disadvantaged, that would be a really important consideration as to whether we thought we should invest in that or not. The second consideration is absolutely around the timing and understanding when that timing is going to come into place and how that might impact the returns on our investment. And I suppose just kind of thinking about this focus on kind of the medium term, long term, I would be quite interested to find out your perspective on, I suppose, kind of looking at it from a macroeconomic perspective. Do you think that kind of the current inflationary headwinds have impacted investor appetite for hydrogen startups? It's a really interesting question, one that we get asked a lot The short answer is that the outlook is still very positive for hydrogen. As the market context for the underlying reasons for the inflation, it obviously has been increasing natural gas and other hydrocarbon prices due to all of the world events that we have going on right now and has been going on for the last several years. 
much of that can be resolved by the rollout of the hydrogen ecosystem. So moving away from the reliance on a few countries producing fossil fuels to a distributed energy system, which is significantly more resilient, as well as being low emission, is obviously going to be incredibly helpful to bring a lot of these headwinds under control. And that's what hydrogen offers, is the ability to build a really resilient energy system. But that being said, our companies are obviously still closing rounds at attractive valuations at multiples above their last round. But we are seeing the process taking longer than it did previously because investors are naturally looking to protect themselves for the downside. They're trying to make sure that they fully understand the risks of the investment as well as the opportunities. So yes, we do see that play out in some of our investments in terms of the length of the time that it takes to gain that capital. So would you say that kind of hydrogen is still a particularly high risk investment? It's a really good question. I would say that it depends on what you're looking to do with the hydrogen. There is no doubt that, and I think we can look across the various different forecasts for hydrogen from the various publications, there's no doubt that hydrogen is going to play a really critical role in the decarbonisation. It's very, very hard for the world to move to a fully net zero model without hydrogen. The question really is, is around where it's going to be deployed and when it's going to be deployed. So I would say there are definitely markets in which you would say that it's moving towards being a lower risk investment. So there are some early mover markets that we're seeing, and we spoke about some of those, for instance, in the marine space, where there's very little alternative apart from hydrogen-derived fuels. Now, whether that's e-methanol, e-ammonia, but hydrogen is going to be absolutely critical to the decarbonisation of that. We also see that in some energy sectors as well, for instance, in Asia, or hydrogen-derived fuels, for instance, e-ammonia, is going to be critical to the decarbonisation of their energy system as well. And you can make those parallels as well in many other industries. So I would say the term high risk doesn't apply to some segments. However, for other segments, it's going to take time and we're going to need to see both technology improvements as well as business model improvements in order to reduce the risks of those specific investments. Michelle, thank you again for speaking with us on today's podcast. It's been really great to find out a little bit more about, I suppose, kind of the risk profile of hydrogen, where the main focuses are when it comes to investment, and really where the technology gaps currently exist. No, it's been absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and for the great discussion. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe for the latest HE Live episodes. And for more news and analysis, be sure to subscribe to Hydrogen Economist and follow us on social media for more updates.